This is Disentangling Disinformation, a podcast from the British Embassy in The Hague. In this series, we're asking, what is disinformation? How does it work? And why does it matter? Disinformation is nothing new. Deception, propaganda, call it what you will. It's all been part of conflict way back into history. Last time we discussed how disinformation works, we heard about the impact of disinformation on journalists and journalism, and some of the ways that different people try to distort or shape the truth. And in this third and final episode, I'm joined by Adi Schroeder and Damien Arne, and we're going to look at why disinformation matters, and why we should be aware of it and the impact it has on us. How does it impact us directly? How does it change the global structures around us? Ali Schroeder is Councillor for Public Affairs at the US Embassy in The Hague, and Damien Arno is a Senior Public Relations Officer at NATO, who's written about the impact of disinformation on relations between states in The Hague Journal of Diplomacy. Both are speaking based on their own experiences. Damien, would you like to just give a bit of an introduction into the work that you're doing um, and your role studying disinformation? Yes, uh, good morning, Charlotte, and thank you very much for the invitation. I must say in, in introduction, I, I'm not speaking for NATO this morning, but uh, on the basis of what I was researching a few years ago already. And this had to do with um, uh, uh, some time off I took from NATO to, to study um, disinformation in, in the broader context of post-truth. And uh, a few years ago, post-truth was a big deal, perhaps because the Oxford Dictionary had named post-truth the, the word of the year, uh, I think it was 2016 or 2017. But anyway, there was plenty of writing after that um, to try to understand what that uh, phenomenon was and how it impacted things. And so I did some research on um, on how it impacted or whether it impacted the ability of, of, of states, of, of leaders, of, of bureaucrats uh, to engage in political dialogue. And so um, I came up with some interesting uh, conclusions. Great, and we'll come back to those in a minute, Damien. Um, but hi, Addy. Um, would you like to just say a bit about the role that you're you're doing here in The Hague? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me today. I think it's um, you know very important that we're all here talking about this, and I know we'll get a little bit more into it, but disinformation is something that confronts us all daily, whether we're you know just scrolling our social media or, or doing a job like some of us do and, and dealing with um, international statements by, by world leaders. So I think it's, it's super important to talk about today. Uh, in my role here in The Hague, I'm responsible for all of our outreach to the Dutch public, whether that's exchanges or social media or media and so we do see disinformation in a lot of different things that we do. Great. Thanks very much. And welcome both of you. Um, Damien, you were talking about post-truth and about the idea of that having a big impact on policymakers. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Sure, Charlotte. And, and I was trying in preparing for this podcast, I was trying to, to understand or to re reconvince myself perhaps how disinformation and post-truth uh, relate to each other. And I think Disinformation is a super corrosive uh, phenomenon which really needs addressing, especially because uh, it has such an impact on trust between the speaker and the, and the, and the audience. Um, but post-truth, in, in, the, in the way I, I researched it, is a bit broader. And the way I was best able to explain it to myself uh, yesterday uh, was to imagine that post-truth is like the monetary system and disinformation is like the currency. So post-truth is a bit of, of the broader phenomenon. And in the research I conducted a few years back, I wasn't so much getting into disinformation um, from a micro standpoint, perhaps, or, or trying to see who's telling the truth and who's lying and things like that. And I took a bit of the helicopter view and saw, um, 
you know, manipulating information is is really as old as as the world and uh, and as diplomacy. Um, it's been it's been happening for quite a long time, and and there's something new uh, in the last twenty years that's that's happened. And I was trying to get at the root of that. And I think what I found out is that the advent of social media in the, in the first uh, decade of this century has really changed everything because. Um, whilst, uh, you know, diplomats oftentimes twisted the truth a little bit to, to make their points in diplomatic circles, now you have complete uh, loss of control and everybody is saying anything he or she wants. And that's, that's, I think, the new phenomenon that we're grappling with uh, at various levels. Would you agree with that, Adi? Well, I, I don't know if I'd say twisting the truth, maybe like to sharing a different shade of the truth. But I, I, I do agree with what you're saying, that social media is really what's changed the game uh, in terms of where people are getting their information and where they're sharing their information, right? We're all, you know, I, I talk with my parents about this regularly. You know, we, they grew up listening to Walter Cronkite and he shared the news and that's all you needed to have is that's the news. And so there's no debate on what's truth and what's not truth. And even his generation, you know, he's in his 70s. He has a hard time figuring out where to get his real news, whether whether what he sees on Facebook, someone posting is true or not. And that really dives into a lot of what everybody's having to figure out as a consumer today of information. And Damien, do you think social media platforms have a responsibility to counter disinformation? As a citizen, yes. Um, it's it's not exactly the angle I took on my on my research, but yes, I mean, I think disinformation being corrosive, it needs to be addressed. Um, what I've sort of uh, I, I tackled this from the point of view of of the the audience, if you will, and and and, and this is also some of the work we're doing at NATO is to work on media literacy and trying to raise the literacy of of the of the audiences to understand how to to look at information, uh, to make the effort to try to have different angles, uh, to review where the information is coming from, what the interests may be of the person or the, or the entity disseminating the information. So the whole media literacy is something that's quite interesting, I think, in that field. Yeah. Uh, I wanted perhaps just to say also that, uh, and, and Walter Cronkite is a great example historically, and, and <laughs> we all remember him, but um, I think at the time, as, as, uh, as Adi just said, uh, we were talking about facts, um, and what social media has, has uh, done to us is that we've shifted from facts to data. And now the social media are, are proposing to give us and to give uh, decision makers data uh, to track sentiment, to track trends, much more than facts, which was, which was trying to describe the, uh, reality in a way. So that's a, that's a really interesting point. Do you think that we've seen an increase in data over the last five years, over the last 20 years? And what do you think that increase in use of data has meant? I mean, in, in the last five years, certainly, we've seen attempts by institutions like mine. I, I, I can only uh, speak of what I've experienced, but we have certainly seized on the immense and exciting opportunities provided by data tracking and data mining and data science. And we now have at NATO, for instance, a chief information officer, which is a rather new post. And I think a lot of other institutions are doing the same thing. Data has the potential to really inform things in, a, in very novel ways. The thing is, though, that it's, it's, it's a different um, approach than, than facts in, in, in so many ways. So thinking about different interpretations of the truth or different, um, different use of stat, stats and data to, to get to what's, what's real um, leads us to think about what people can do to stop the spread of disinformation so they can protect themselves through education. But Adi, what can they do to, 
Or what can I do as a citizen to stop the spread of disinformation? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to talk about data in our, you know, research or passively as we're sitting back. But it's another thing to think about, you know, your average 20 year old who's scrolling social media yeah. and coming across all this data, right? Because they're forming an opinion and, and they're seeing the world through this data. Um, I think that there's a lot that we could do. I like that Damien mentioned some of the work that, that NATO is doing as far as uh, kind of trying to do me media literacy trainings to, to help people think critically about not everything you, all the data that you see is necessarily true. Um, and I think it's, it's incumbent on all of us who are kind of working in this space, but then in general who have resources of, of governments to, to try to educate the citizens, to try to encourage people to think critically about, okay, you saw that. Where did you, who was the source? Where was it coming from? Might that person have uh, an angle or, or, or a reason to be saying that? And do you believe that 100%? To really, uh, it's, a, it's a Russian saying, but I love it having studied Russian in the past, and especially since Russia is so active in the, in the social media space, trust but verify, right? So think, think about every piece of information that you're taking in, which is a lot to put on an average person. And is there anything that you have seen that has been particularly helpful in helping people to do that? I know the U.S. Embassy is working on a tool at the moment. Yeah, thanks. The State Department has a whole, it's called the Global Engagement Center, set up to really think about research and counteract disinformation and propaganda in general, because they're not exactly one and the same. They're, yeah. they're slightly different. Um, but one thing that we've done in cooperation with them has been uh, following this idea of inoculation theory. Inoculation theory is the same idea as a vaccine. If we give you the vaccine, then when you're exposed to the disease of disinformation, you will think a little bit about okay, is this true or not? And so based on this inoculation theory, we've, with the help of a Dutch developer, developed a video game called Cat Park. Mm -hmm. It's a 15-minute little game that you play, and it basically pulls you into this disinformation world and kind of makes it fun for you to say like, oh, wow, uh, can you spread this disinformation? The city is making a cat park. Go and tell all your friends. Ouch, aren't you outraged? Look, you got a lot of likes on social media. Maybe you should do it more. Um, so the idea is people can go online and play this 15-minute game to then make them think, huh, was that meme I saw yesterday true or not? Yeah, and, how, and see how quickly disinformation spreads. Exactly right. So, Adi, you just mentioned Russian use of social media and Russian activity yeah. on social media. Can you tell me a bit about how Russian influence operations help to shape the perception of Russia internationally? Yeah, I mean, Russia is really kind of the master, kind of the, the master class of, of influence and operations for many years, right? We can go back to yeah. Cold War history. But in, in recent times, I think it's an interesting case study to look at, especially in, in, in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine, how they really uh, started kind of clouding the waters of who was responsible, what NATO was, what NATO was and wasn't doing. And I, I'd love to hear more from Damien about this because he's really the expert, but they are a master at deflecting and muddying the waters yeah. in terms, and then the, the, your average viewer, your average reader doesn't really know where the truth really is, which just confuses it and then lets Russia proceed upon, upon their, their plan that they're doing, whether Ukrainians are really Russians or not. You know, they've just got people scratching their heads and questioning what's really the truth, which is, which is exactly what they've been trying to do. What do you think about that, Damien? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Adi's right. The um, the the way I see it from where I'm sitting is the information landscape is a hugely contested space, and this is 
I mean, you could say this isn't new, but I think the extent of it is new. And and uh, at NATO, we've we've taken this on quite early. Uh, we, we've recognized that it was a contested space, and we wanted to be present to to give our piece. Um, you know, we we have a say here. We don't engage in propaganda when we see it. We just call out what we see as being the truth. Yeah. Of course, um, as a citizen, uh, I think what's what's uh, in terms of what to do about this as a citizen. Uh, what I tell, uh, you know, students when they come and, and get briefings here at NATO headquarters is, you know, you need to get to educate yourself about the media environment. You need to to do the work. And it's normal that it should be a bit of work to come to a sense of what's going on, what reality is, who's who's telling the truth, who's closer to the truth. Because, you know, the truth is a long philosophical debate, obviously. But, you know, who everybody speaks from somewhere. But I think it's in terms of how to address this. It it um, it takes it takes work. That's what I tell um, younger people. It takes work and uh, it takes reading different sources, different angles, uh, to make your own opinion. And do you think that that has got harder since the Russian invasion of Ukraine because the Russians have been saturating social media and saturating of course, mainstream of media? Course, of course, of course, because we're in a conflict. Um, we're, we're observing a conflict. We're not party to the conflict, but we're observing the conflict. And so the conflict has, has uh, taken to the airwaves, so to speak, and it's in the information space. So, yeah, we, we see it worsening, definitely, over the last uh, few months. And I think people are really calling, you know, governments, NATO, other organizations are really calling it out when they see it more than they used to. You know, I think you know, you, you mentioned diplomacy earlier on. Maybe we, we saw a diplomat say something that wasn't quite right, but we weren't sure really how to how to engage with it. And I think in the last, you know, since the, in, the further invasion of Ukraine, I think all governments have become more comfortable with saying, hey, Russia, that's not right. Actually, here's the real facts. And then they present the real facts, which is hard to do because, as you mentioned, the information space is so complicated, you've got seconds to capture somebody's attention, right? So it's really complicated to say, well, Russia said this, but the real fact is this, and that's why you should think this. And that's a lot to put on the average person. But I think the more that we push back with the real facts, we meaning, you know, all of the Western world, all of everybody kind of united against Russia in this in this kind of ideological and real war, the more we talk about this, the more I think we are we are causing people to think twice when they hear a statement from Russia. And that's pretty hard without repeating what Russia says, mm. right? And mm. giving more voice to mm. their disinformation. So what have you found to be the most effective way as a public relations expert of getting a, getting through to people in those first seconds? Yeah, I think social media is really hard, right? Because nobody's going to want on want to click on US Embassy in The Hague, British Embassy The Hague, Facebook or Twitter. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, as much as I like to think that we're the end all be all of what's going on, I think it really goes back to, you know, what Edward Murrow said, the last three feet of connection with people. It goes back to really connecting with people in person or through, you know, meeting with classes and groups of people. That's the only way really that we're going to get people People to think critically about this because mm -hmm. I think that governments are having a harder time co competing in that social media information space. Is that something that rang true when you were doing your research, Damien? Um, yeah, I mean, what, what I—it's uh, interesting to to talk about this, and and um, I think what 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 we've been discussing for the last two minutes is basically the fight for public opinion support, right? And there's definitely a fight between different political parties, uh, whether it's the Russian, but sometimes it's other countries. It's, it's, it could be the Chinese. It could be uh, non-state actors. It could be whatever. And there's definitely a fight for um, uh, audience uh, 
consent, if you will, or, or to, to take on public opinion uh, one way or the other. What I've researched is actually um, a bit different, and it's the impact of all of this that we've been describing on uh, our ability to engage uh, with uh, adversaries or with other states. And, you know, I, I mapped out um, a very, uh, I'll say this very quickly, but I've, I've basically uh, said that political dialogue is at the foundation of everything that states do when, it, when they engage each other. Political, political dialogue is what helps to understand the other party and then to engage in either diplomacy when there are disagreements that need to be solved outside of the battlefield or when there's cooperative security endeavors where people agree, states agree, and they want to do more together. But at the foundation of this is political dialogue. And what I found out, interestingly, is that this this disinformation landscape, this post-truth era that we're in, really is, is, is um, corrosive of, of our ability to engage in dialogue. Because these alternate facts, these disinformation, really undervalue or devalue, sorry, um, the search for, for, you know, a common reality that we can describe together, whether it be with Russia or whether it's, you know, between uh, Britain and the European Union when, when Brexit was going on, whether it's uh, inside the United States in the polarized uh, political landscape that we, we observe – um, uh, or that we observed when I was doing research in the middle of the Trump administration. Um, but it's especially true in international uh, relations, obviously, in, in diplomacy, in, in, in our outreach to other countries. And that's where it's, uh, it's very uh, detrimental also, not just to, to public opinion, uh, as, we've, as we were saying before. So I guess that brings us, Ali, to kind of why it matters. Why does disinformation matter? It matters because... It impacts our ability to talk to people. It impacts people's ability to understand what's happening. How have you seen since the invasion um, the impact of disinformation on government relations with Russia or with other countries that... Yeah, I mean, where, where I said I'm fortunate to be here in Europe and working with a very like-minded partner, the Netherlands, who uh, uh, the research has shown is actually Dutch people are more uh, resilient against Russian disinformation than even most of the European Union as a whole, yeah. which by and large is better than the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, from where I sit, it doesn't affect uh, what I'm doing in my work with the Dutch people as well, because the Dutch people are thinking critically about the Russian disinformation and, and thinking twice before they believe something out of Russia. I think that probably goes back to MH17. Yeah. The, you know, the, the Netherlands has had a longer experience with this than most countries around the world. But I think where it really comes home is in, in the global south, mm -hmm. in the places that are a little further from the conflict, uh, a little, a little, it doesn't touch them quite as, as uh, directly. And they're reading it from such a distance and, and they wonder, you know, what's going on. So then you come to the point of, well, uh, who do you support in this conflict? And, and I think that really does lead to the public opinion being like, hey, we're going to just stay out of it because I'm not sure what's right. And so yeah. that's where it comes down. That is what matters. That is what matters. There are people dying every day because countries, people don't really understand what's going on. So they'll just stay out of it. Do you think that the public's inability to work out what is right or wrong in some countries that are further away from the conflict is impacting on government's response to the conflict? Yeah, and I think I think what there is 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 a, a fatigue uh, with this complexity, um, and and we see this in in polls. I, I don't have the numbers anymore, but I remember uh, a Reuters study on on the public sentiments about about exactly this, you know, and how 
how it's so much work now to understand what's going on and to 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 get to a proper uh, opinion about things, and and so you see sometimes public opinion just disinvesting into this from, from this and and saying, look, I I I'm not going to understand this, so whatever. Yeah. And I think in terms of what the South and what Adi was saying about the the South uh, skepticism, which is so problematic for for us uh, in the current conflict. Um, it, it's it's partially that it's it's partially look we 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 don't know we don't want to have to decide so just don't uh, don't bother us with this basically which is which is not satisfactory obviously and of course impacts in, as in the UN it impacts us in pretty critical votes absolutely pretty critical votes and critical like financial and and military support for Ukraine yeah um, and Damien just to kind of finish up on uh, how we combat it and and what governments and institutions can do to do that. Can you talk a bit about the outreach that NATO has been doing um, to help people combat disinformation? Yeah, yeah, thank you. And and I want to pick up from, from the resilience point that was just made. I think uh, NATO, also post-COVID and post-pandemic, NATO's really taken on this resilience topic and, and uh, recognizing it is so important uh, to nurture resilience in in, in um in, in the population and in, in public opinion, especially on disinformation, so that's that's very very strong. But what what I can say also is that since the pandemic and and now that we're a little bit um, better able to engage, and I, I talked about engagement earlier and how important that is, we see a huge rise in in the interest from from university students, from master students, from faculty, from think tanks, uh, writing to NATO and asking whether they can come and engage with us, and that's very. Um, uh, gratifying to see because it means that uh, people are trying uh, to be um, uh, resilient, are, are trying to make up their own mind about what they what they think, and 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 want to be informed. So this need to be informed remains alive, which is which is gratifying. I think that's uh, that's uh, hopeful. Yeah, really, really heartening in a really tricky tricky time. Um, Adi, Damien, anything else you want to convey to people about disinformation, why it matters and how we can help combat it? Yeah, I, I, uh, I echo what Damien was saying too about, you know, the in-person student groups coming and reaching out. We usually talk to two to three student groups a week at the U.S. Embassy. Um, and we have a form on our website if anybody's listening and is a student <laughs> and wants to come uh, hear from the embassy people about what we actually do here. Uh, but the other thing I just want to mention again is this uh, Cat Park game that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's a fun 15-minute thing, especially if you're a student or an educator that wants to kind of introduce this to your your class or, or your group you're studying with. So catpark.game. Check it out. Thanks very much, Adi. Damien? Yeah, I mean, my my parting word, I think, is uh, engage, engage, engage in dialogue and, and in-person dialogue especially because there's no um, other way to uh, to make up your own mind. And, and if you're interested in um, in reading my piece, it's called How the Post-Truth Phenomenon Harms Political Dialogue Between States, uh, published by the Hague Journal of Diplomacy. But thanks a lot, uh, Charlotte. Thanks, Damien. And just, we can find that online? I think so, or in your library uh, at university, I'm sure. Brilliant. Great. Damien, Adi, thank you so much for joining us today um, and for helping contribute to our podcast series on disentangling disinformation thank you Adi and Damien for joining us today that concludes our series on disentangling disinformation we hope you've enjoyed listening about the ways disinformation is used in today's rapidly changing world and that you feel more empowered to be aware and resilient to a story that doesn't quite add up 
And remember to scrutinise everything you read, see or hear. I'm Charlotte Jago. Thanks for listening.